This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, welcome to The Country Hour on Tuesday, the last Tuesday before Christmas. I'm Cassie Huff. A silver leaf nightshade infestation is proving to be a bit of a difficult and costly problem in the state's mid-north. What also happens is it actually devalues the land itself. So it makes, if, if, if the landowner was going to sell this land in the future, there's significant downgrades in the value of this land because it's seen as contaminated with silver leaf nightshade as well. Devaluing land, I'll have more on that soon. And Australia's producers are hopeful Penny Wong's visit to China means Australia's trade relationship with the country may be on the mend. They might be daring to dream there. I'll have more on that soon. But first to crops and harvest might be still underway in many areas of the state, but with all the rain through spring, summer spraying is not far away. Each year spray drift causes issues, which is why Green Producers SA has launched a new campaign reminding growers about the importance of safe summer spraying practices. Chief Executive Officer Brad Perry can explain. Good afternoon. Oh, hi, Cassie. So GPSA has launched a new campaign to try and remind people about the importance of safe summer spraying practices. What's this campaign about? Yeah, so we've previously had uh, a campaign called Hit Your Target, um, and that's been running for a number of years, really just trying to educate grain producers on on the things um, that you should do when you're spraying um, to be safe and, and not to uh, cause spray drift. Uh, so we've basically strengthened that campaign and uh, we've come up with a new title uh, called Keep Your Droplets to Yourself. Uh, and this has actually been a, a title that's come up from a grain producer, so um, really aimed at talking directly to grain producers about the importance of responsible spray application. And along with that, we've got a fact sheet that's got 11 tips that's been pulled together by... Um, stakeholders and, and experts, um, really they're talking about things uh, to be aware of when planning spraying. It sounds like it could also be a uh, COVID safety um, campaign as well, keep your droplets to yourself. Uh, you mentioned a couple of things there. What are you wanting producers in particular to take away from this and what sort of resources do they have access to? So there's a little bit of background history, and I think access to, to chemical, um, you know, it's critical for the grain industry, but it's something um, that, you know, we've got to get it right to continue to keep accessing the, the chemicals that we need uh, in the grain industry. Um, so as a little bit of uh, background information, PPSA, as a primary producer, say, held a, a roundtable recently um, where we had a number of the uh, commodities in South Australia and nationally um, present. So... We really discussed how we can um, spray properly, how we can apply our chemicals properly. And uh, it was not just for, for grain, it's just for, for wine and other industries as well. But we recognise that in the grain industry, um, you know, it's our responsibility at the, the grower base to make sure that um, we're spraying it right. So we really want to um, put as much information, education, reminders out there to grain producers as we start summer spraying uh, to remember things like, you know, monitor the weather, avoid spraying when there's hazardous temperature inversions, use correct, uh, correct droplet size, um, avoid high-speed spraying and also recording and reporting. So 
some really key um, messages and education pieces that we want to get out uh, and, and really hammer home before summer spraying gets into full swing. Have there been any issues with spray drift? As you say, it's, it's early days yet. A lot of people are still reaping. But are there any particular concern areas? Oh, there certainly has been um, over the years concerns raised about spray drift. And I know the Department of, of Primary Industries in South Australia has investigated a number of those. So, yeah, it is always a, a challenge and a risk. Um, and particularly when it is wet, we've got uh, we've got a lot of weeds out there. Um, and, and there has been quite unusual weather as far as it does seem to be quite, um, you know, mild and windy at times. So I think more than ever, we've really just got to be um, on the top of our game as grain producers to make sure um, that we are uh, using pesticides and spraying them uh, properly. Work in this area has been ongoing. How will this campaign, the Keep Your Droplets to Yourself campaign, factor into the, the broad suite of measures that are being taken in this area? Yeah, look, I, I think, Cassie, this is going to be a program that's going to be ongoing now. So um, this is really just the first step um, in, in grain producers combating uh, spray drift and making sure that, that these incidents aren't happening. So GPS is going to continue to work with industry and we're going to roll out a whole heat, a whole suite of uh, initiatives in this area. And we really want to uh, create almost a community where grain producers are saying, yes, I want to do the right thing. I'm a responsible um, applicator of chemicals. But in saying that, we also need to um, really reach out to the entire supply chain. So even um, you know, chemical suppliers, machinery dealers, we need everyone involved in this to make sure that, that we are uh, continuing to provide best practice when it comes to chemical application. Well, hopefully it's a success and uh, there, isn't, there aren't any incidents of spray drift. It's certainly an ongoing issue the industry is facing, but thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Kathy. Chief Executive Officer Brad Perry speaking there. And if you'd like some more information, you can go to the GPSA website to find out more there. Speaking of crops, the Country Fire Service is currently responding to a truck fire on a private property near the Barrier Highway and Horrocks Highway. The truck was transporting some hay. It's called Light and is producing a significant amount of smoke in the area and is going to do so for some time. Their crews are there working to extinguish the fire, but it does mean that the Barrier Highway is currently closed. So if you are in that area, just be careful. There will be some emergency service personnel around there and the smoke might reduce some visibility as well. Uh, I think the the traffic in that area has dropped to 25 kilometres an hour. Um, But if you'd like more information, you can go to the CFS website to find out more as well. A silverleaf nightshade infestation is proving to be a difficult and costly problem in the state's mid-north. This pest plant, which is also known as the tomato weed, can rob grain crops of water and nutrients and reduce yields by up to 70%. Northern and York Landscape Board team leader David Hughes says recent high rainfall will trigger its arrival and land managers are being urged to keep a lookout and catch outbreaks early. Yeah, unfortunately, in, in some areas of Lock Hill and the mid-north of South Australia, we do have established populations of silverleaf nightshade. Uh, and once they're established, it's very, very expensive and difficult to actually eradicate or completely control these plants. And they can rob uh, over 70% of the production from the area and significantly devalue the land because it's so expensive. And for some landowners, 
unfortunately it's it's they, they just say it's out of control so we're trying to highlight the importance of jumping on this weed early before it gets established because it's a, a deep-rooted perennial plant that the roots extend over two meters deep so um, you just don't want those old established plants on your property if you do have any new plants that are just establishing with you know, maybe roots of less than 30 centimetres, um, you've got the chance to eradicate it and, and jump on it. So, yeah, just highlighting that with all this rain we've had, there's the potential for a lot of weeds and silverleaf nightshades, one of those to you know, spread. And unfortunately, once it's established, it's very expensive and difficult to eradicate. So it's, it's highlighting with this rain uh, to be very, very careful. And if you do see a plant that you're not sure of, to get it identified and, and, and ask for help from us. And what does that help and support look like from you? Um, so we're very keen to stop the spread of silverleaf nightshade. So new infestations, whether they be on roadsides or in areas where landowners haven't seen it before, uh, we, we're keen to help those landowners control those plants. So give advice, just tips that will, will help them hopefully get all the plants. It's it's really only a summer active plant, so often I'll say to for farmers, if, if they can, if it's in, in pasture areas, something, you know, put droppers in the ground where you find these plants and, and mark these plants and um, start treating them and, and realise that they may come back the following following year. Um, and with, with the rainfall over summer, we may get repeat germinations from rainfall events over summer. So it's, it's just giving the whole sort of gambit of, of weed control advice but with this weed being so such a serious problem um, once it is established is, is trying to get on the front foot and, and making sure it's, it's not established in new areas. What impacts will this have on crop yields if it does spread uh, and you have outbreaks on your property? We've got evidence of reducing yields by up to 70% so quite significant yields. It does come up later in the year, but it takes so much, um, it you know, robs the soil um, of lots of um, nutrients and um, really sort of cleans that soil out, unfortunately. And what also happens is it actually devalues the land itself. So it makes, you know, if, if the landowner was going to sell this land in the future, there's significant downgrades in the value of this land because it's seen as contaminated with silverleaf nightshade as well. And you know, it's, it then it you know, becomes well known in that neighbourhood as a contaminated property that you, know, you, you, you have to be careful of. And the same goes with stock. Um, you know, people don't buying stock from, from these properties would be, be aware and and that sort of things as well. So yeah, the the whole reducing yields is is quite quite nasty. But it's it's the fact that uh, it, it's that longer term valuation of, of the land itself is is another factor. So how is the weed actually spreading, and is there ways that that can be mitigated? Yeah, that's that's a great question. With with this particular weed, it can actually spread by root fragments. So cultivation of any of the little tiny fragments through a paddock can spread it and, and make it worse. It's also the seeds, the berries themselves. It's also known locally in areas as tomato weed because they look like little tomatoes. They can unfortunately last for up to 18 days, 21 days in the stomach of sheep or cattle. So Grazing animals um, can actually introduce it to your property that way. Um, so we, we sort of, you know, if, if people buying stock in, um, it's always a really good idea to have those new stock in, in one paddock, often near the house or where you're driving past all the time. So if any new weeds do come 
up in that area can jump on them straight away so they're sort of cleaned out in that one spot that you keep an eye on um, and that's for all weeds unfortunately uh, stock do spread spread weeds quite a bit and, and it's also once you've got this weed to be aware that cultivation uh, those root fragments uh, will start new new colonies of, of this plant so it, it's quite um, aggressive and uh, yeah just you just don't want it to establish and you just want to jump on it so yeah very keen for landowners to be aware and you know, if they need any advice to contact us so we can help them with identification and, and, and weed control techniques. Yeah, weeds galore at the moment. That was Northern and York Landscape Board team leader David Hughes speaking with Dimitri Panagiotaris there about silverleaf nightshade and the, the difficult and costly problem that is particularly in the state's mid-north at the moment. It's 17 minutes past 12. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au Proudly supported by the Kandinan Group and ABC Rural. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Weather's up next, but in the meantime, a South Australian winery is trialling a robotic tractor to automate some of its low-value, labour-intensive tasks. Limestone Coast-based Treasury Wines is using the tractor at its Windsor State Winery, where the robot is learning to safely traverse its vineyard surroundings while slashing grass. Windsor State site manager Tim Malone says the robot's capabilities will expand throughout the three-year trial. We've partnered with uh, Persa and Wine Australia to trial it in our vineyard. Um, at the moment we've got it set up slashing our rows, so cutting the grass between the vines. And does it have a, a name that it goes by or it's just Bravo 2? Uh, we consider it a co-bot amongst ourselves, so a co-worker. It's helping us get all the things done um, that need to be done and it's not sort of a person sitting behind the wheel, it's a robot doing that operation. Is there anything, uh, like I said, it's, it's currently slashing grass for you guys today. Is there anything else that it, it can do? Yeah, so we're just basically testing the technology to see that it can follow a path um, at the moment and then once we've successfully slashed, we'll then consider what we can do with it. But there's plenty of other trailed and um, vehicle-mounted operations that we do that we look forward to trialling over the next three years. Uh, so at the end of the three years, we'll basically run an analysis on return on our investment and make a decision on whether we continue with these um, machines going forward. What happens if the if the, does the unit get stuck? Does it is it able to get itself out of uh, out of an obstacle if something pops out in front of it? Yeah, so it's got a full obstacle detection system. Um, it will basically identify what's in front of it, and if it's something that it doesn't expect to see, it will send an alarm to an app. Um, that we use to operate it. Our operator can then have a look at the app through the camera that's on board and make a decision on whether it can continue or not. Uh, was there any sort of setup required to get it to, to be uh, an automated unit? Yeah, a fair bit. So we had the whole place um, scanned with the drone, which identified every post on the property along with any other hazards, whether it be a frost fan or um, a pump shed, that sort of thing. So a base map was formed and then a path was drawn for the robot to follow so that it can successfully traverse our site. What was the, the main sort of driving force behind uh, trialling this, this robot? 
probably back to our cobot point to be honest um uh, labor resource is starting to get pretty tight and we need to think about different ways to get the same amount of work done so if we can have a person running a few of these units to achieve the same outcome that's going to be really good for us that was windsor state site manager tim malone well, the robot was designed and built by Swarm Farm Robotics, an Australian team based in regional Queensland. Prior to setting up Swarm Farm, company chief executive Andrew Bate was a farmer. He says he is interested in the efficiencies automation brings to the agricultural sector, and he believes the true benefits of robotics is in making farming practices more efficient. You know, we're very much... Um farmers ourselves and you know swarm farm really grew from a desire to farm better and more sustainably and and i kind of had this vision that i wanted to, to take in robotics uh, into agriculture and and um, and that's how swarm farm kind of started it was farming first and 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 now it's kind of flipped around it's kind of uh, robots first and i did some farming with spare time but um yeah it's um yeah been quite a quite a journey just in terms of the the robots itself so sort of treasury wines in in Kunawara, uh, and windsor state they've got a, a bravo too so um, do you make a series of different robots for different customers or do you just kind of iterate on on the one model? Yeah, look, there's actually only one model. It's called Swarmbot 5, but each robot gets a name. So um, the first robot was Alpha and then we went Bravo, Charlie, Delta, Echo, Foxtrot. We got through to Zulu and then we got Alpha 2, Bravo 2, Charlie 2, and we've kind of grown from there. We've actually got through to Zulu 2 now. So nowadays everyone names their own robots. We're getting some really creative names coming through now in the naming. Do you sort of see these, your your robots as, as kind of complementing sort of the workforce and, and what's going on in agriculture? Or is it is it to try and, and kind of get rid of doing a lot of those sort of manual tasks? Yeah, it, it's interesting. When we started out, there was a lot of people talking about driverless tractors and, and it was kind of a, I could automate that kind of mentality out there. Whereas when we started Swarm Farm, we really wanted to bring better farming practices into agriculture. And so a large part of the work we've done and a lot of the technology we've done so far has been around, you know, cutting out the amount of pesticides used in agriculture with cameras and things like that that detect pests and only spray when they need to. And we've seen kind of reductions in herbicide usage down to only 5% of what was previously used. So that's quite significant. We did some numbers last year. I think we knocked out around uh, nearly nearly 600 tonnes of pesticide out of the environment last year with our robots. So it's the change in farming practices that's really interesting with with, with autonomy and, and robotics. Um, sure, there's a case that there's a shortage of labour and things just can't get done on time. But I think when we look back in, you know, five years' time, we're going to say, wow, this is really fundamentally changed the way we're producing our crops. We're using better, you know, farming techniques and things that we kind of didn't do, you know, 10 years ago and things we didn't consider practical 10 years ago. Um, and that's what's going to drive the adoption of robotics. But, you know, back to the here and now, it's it's things like uh, certainly in the vineyard industry, um, simple tasks such as, as, you know, mowing grass and things like that. And I think what comes next will be, you know, intelligent detection of pests and, and diseases and treatment and things like that. And then eventually down the track, you know, things like, you know, picking, pruning, um, all that sort of stuff is going to come into robotics. But there's going to be a little bit slower pathway to get there. That some of these things are quite complicated to do with the current state of robotics. They're coming, but just not quite ready yet. And we're pretty proud that we've done this from Australia. It's completely Australian technology. We've developed it all in-house from our software stack and all of our autonomy technology through the prototypes of our robot and manufacturing. So it's exciting that it's actually happening in Australia and Australia's got really at this stage some of the highest adoption of agriculture robotics in the world because of this. And 
we'll see more and more of this now flowing into other other industries. And obviously, the vineyard industry is one we're interested in and, and you know, think that we're going to add a lot of value. Yeah, at the moment, it's the, certainly the broadacre grains and cotton industry that's, that's driving adoption. And there's a huge desire out there within orchards, horticulture and vineyards now this sort of technology as well. And this is kind of our first steps you know, into understanding what that potential can be. Robot designer and owner of Swarm Farm, Andrew Bates, speaking with Leon Giorgio. That's, uh, um, yeah, some interesting work taking place there. We'll head across to the Bureau of Meteorology now, where Senior Forecaster John Fisher can let us know what the lead-up to Christmas is going to be like weather-wise. Good afternoon. G'day, Cassie. So how are things panning out? I know there's a bit of weather on the way in the next day or so. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we do have a slow-moving trough uh, moving across the state, Cassie, so that has been triggering some thunderstorm activity, particularly up through the, the pastorals across the west coast and uh, Air Peninsula uh, over the last uh, 24 hours or so. We do have some of those ongoing thunderstorms uh, across uh, Air Peninsula at the moment and, and just starting to, to extend uh, down a bit further south across northern York Peninsula at the, at the moment. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're going to see these storms just gradually move uh, eastwards uh, in kind of waves over the next 24 hours or so before uh, starting to, to clear out uh, as we move through later later part of uh, Wednesday um, and then mostly dry from, from Thursday. So, yeah, it's going to be uh, a little bit variable in terms of uh, rainfall uh, with, with these thunderstorms storms, um, but uh, th- there is the chance of some heavier falls uh, locally in there. So, uh, yeah, keep an eye out for, for warnings that d- do come out uh, over the, the next uh, day or two. Uh, so, yeah, ahead of that uh, trough, we're, we are seeing, you know, fairly warm conditions still, although the cloud cover is uh, moderating that to, to some degree. But, uh, yeah, above average temperatures, uh, you know, for most centres today, getting up into the, the high 20s or, or into the, the 30s, um, and a bit humid as well in, in parts uh, as that activity makes its way uh, across the state, Cassie. Uh, so, uh, yeah, look, we're, we're going to track that uh, trough as it moves across uh, over the next 24 hours. Um, further severe possible with those storms moving into Wednesday uh, and more across the eastern parts of the state though and then up into the, the north again uh, and we'll see that trough uh, reach central districts uh, late Wednesday and, and uh, some milder uh, southwesterly winds are extending uh, across the, the west and reaching central parts uh, later Wednesday and then throughout uh, on Thursday so by Thursday uh, any thunderstorm activity will be uh, kind of on or kind of east of the eastern border and, uh, and up into the far northeast of the state but elsewhere generally dry conditions with those mild moderate to fresh south to southwesterly winds uh, extending throughout. Uh, and then in the lead up to, to Christmas, uh, a couple of uh, milder days uh, for, uh, you know, for Thursday, Friday and even into to Saturday still uh, across southern parts of the state. But that heat does start to build again uh, in the north by Saturday and uh, yeah, pretty much dry through that period. Uh, and then for Christmas Day itself, uh, winds do come round to the uh, east to, to northeast uh, during the morning. We, we do still have some sea breezes around during the afternoon, but yeah, with those those winds coming around more northerly, uh, we do have uh, a warmer day on the way. So uh, yeah, temperatures uh, touch above average for, for this time of year, but mostly sunny conditions. So it looks like a, a pretty good Christmas day there, Cassie. Uh, but beyond that, really heating up uh, for, for Boxing Day and beyond. So we, we might even be into kind of heat wave conditions uh, by this time next week. But uh, yeah, pretty much dry uh, from Thursday 
onwards. Uh, and in terms of those rainfall totals, uh, probably looking at uh, 5 uh, to, to about 20 millimetres uh, with that thunderstorm activity uh, in general, but uh, there could still be some, some local high falls of uh, you know, 30, 40 millimetres even under some of those stronger storms, uh, particularly through the pastoral districts, but uh, into tomorrow, uh, maybe extending a bit further south uh, across the Flinders, mid-north uh, as well. So we'll just have to track those storms as they come across, because that's really going to be uh, the only rainfall uh, of note over the, the, the next week, Cassie. Thanks so much for that, John. It certainly sounds like summer will arrive with a bang just after Christmas by the, by the looks of that forecast. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. John Fisher there with the latest in the weather in the far west of New South Wales. The upper western will be partly cloudy. There's a medium chance of showers in the west, most likely in the afternoon and evening, but not much chance of rain anywhere else. There could be a thunderstorm around, though. Overnight temperatures will fall to between 14 and 22 degrees, with the daytime temperatures reaching the low to mid-30s. The lower western will be partly cloudy. There's a medium chance of showers in the west, maybe a thunderstorm as well, getting down to 13 to 21 degrees, but during the day reaching the low 30s. We are approaching 12.30 on the Country Hour. More to come in the next half hour. You're listening to the Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill... This is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hello, it's great to have your company today. Now, Udna Dada is one of 19 communities in South Australia that hasn't had access to clean drinking water, but SA Water is finally fixing this issue. We are doing similar projects um, for the townships of Maree, Marla, Yunta, Tarawi, and Manahill. Um, all to be delivered by the end of the 2024 regulatory period for, for SA Water. I'll have more on that soon. And Australian wine producers are hopeful Penny Wong's visit to China means Australia's trade relationship with that country may be on the mend. We'll take a bit of a look at what people are thinking around that. But first we'll find out what's making news with Matt Coleman. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, SA Health has confirmed that blue-green algae has emerged on Lake Bonnie and it's advised against swimming in the lake. The Berry Barmer Council and the SES recently decided to cut off Lake Bonnie from the River Murray to avoid properties being inundated. Local fisherman Kim Manning says it's not the sort of publicity that Barmer needs, but he's confident that the lake will bounce back. Building a third arrestor bed and introducing a go-slow section for heavy vehicles are among 16 options put forward to, inj- to improve safety on the southeastern freeway down track. The short, medium and long-term proposals follow three roundtables headed by the state government in the wake of another serious crash at the crossroad intersection in July. And the latest figures show that South Australia has recorded the largest increase of apprentices and trainees in training across Australia. The research has been released today. It shows there were more than 31,000 apprentices and trainees in June 2022. Completions are also up 38% at more than 19,000, which is the largest increase in the entire nation. More news at 1 o'clock. 
Thanks for that, Matt. Now, as I was saying, Utnadatta is one of 19 communities in South Australia that doesn't have access to a clean drinking water system. SA Water is currently in the process of fixing this issue by building and transporting a new desalination plant to the town. Senior Manager of Infrastructure Planning and Strategy for SA Water, Dr Daniel Hofel, says the plant will be delivered by 2023. So this um, small-scale reverse osmosis desalination facility at Udnadatta um, will produce around 200,000 litres of drinking water um, for the local customers each day uh, for the township of Udnadatta. So we've been working for some time now on our planning assessments, approvals, um, community engagement, uh, contractor engagement and procurement to, um, to be able to deliver this project and I'm very happy to let you know that the, uh, the desalination plant itself has been fabricated in Adelaide and has made the 1,000 kilometre plus journey up to Udnadatta. So we're, we're getting ready for the next stage of the project now. And what was the need for the desal plant? What's the drinking water supply and quality been like for residents? So up until now, the water quality within Udnadatta uh, for the reticulation supply has been a non-drinking supply of water, meaning that it has um, been able to be used for things such as irrigation, stock, uh, washing clothes, bathing and, and flushing toilets, amongst some other things. Um, but what's really exciting is the fact that once this desalination plant is commissioned, um, then the reticulation water supply for Udnadatta will be uh, will be suitable for drinking, which is fantastic. And have the residents in the past requested for their water situation to be looked into and improved? So we've been absolutely working with the community um, for some years now and um, are very happy that we're able to deliver this improved water quality for uh, the township of Udnadatta. What's also exciting is that we are doing similar projects um, for the townships of Mari, Marla, Yunta, Tarawi and Manahill, um, all to be delivered by the end of the 2024 regulatory period for, for SA Water. So there's some great outcomes in terms of improved drinking water for those townships. And what sort of significant difference will this make to the residents' day-to-day lives? So, so there's a few things here. The uh, the water supply will be um, will be filtered in a way that it removes the salinity from it. So at the moment, the water is sourced from underground from the Great Artesian Basin. So it will be desalinated, the salt taken out of it. It will also be disinfected to make it safe for drinking and and many other applications. So this is really important. It's in line with SA Water's strategy, which is to continue to deliver safe, clean drinking water for for customers across the state of South Australia. And obviously it is a huge process and project. And as you mentioned earlier, you've been working on it for some time. Understanding that there has been recent disruptions like COVID, supplies, even most recently floods. Why is it only now that uh, this desal plan is being secured for locals? So um, as you you mentioned here, delivering projects such as this uh, type are incredibly complex. Um, so we've had the impacts of, uh, of COVID-19 on supply chains. We've had some localised flooding, um, which has also impacted the project. And it's also given us the opportunity, I guess, to work um, to work closely with the community 
um, in terms of understanding what they want from the project um, and how they would like the project to be delivered um, for their community and, and for the township. Uh, as I mentioned, we do operate a number of non-drinking suppliers across the state. So Udnadatta is just one of 19 non-drinking water suppliers across the state and SA Water now is, I guess, continuing its program of progressively upgrading those um, in line with its strategy to continue to deliver safe drinking water to customers across the state. Still, why has it taken all this time for SA Water to step in and help those remote communities that have been without quality drinking water for a long time? Yeah, so I guess what's important to, to realise is um, that the communities have um, have had a supply of drinking water, whether it be uh, the rainwater tanks, uh, localised community desalination plants, um, or have been able to purchase the provision of, of drinking water from from um, bottled water supplies. But obviously SA Water operates on a statewide basis, and we've got a number of these drinking water systems, um, 19 in total across the state. And I guess it's, it's, it's good news that we're now able to commit to be able to deliver these uh, these projects to uh, townships such as Udnadatta. It's great that Udnadatta is um, is going to be delivered by 2023. SA Waters Senior Manager of Infrastructure Planning and Strategy, Dr Daniel Hofel, speaking with Demetria Panagiotaris. And I'm sure that will be very welcome in those 19 communities that are getting an upgrade to their water situation. Now, you've probably seen in the headlines that uh, Foreign Minister Penny Wong is travelling to China this afternoon and uh, it's got Australia's peak wine body, hopeful that Australia's trade relationship with that country may be on the mend. It's the first visit by an Australian minister since 2019 after tensions rose between the Morrison government and Beijing over a number of issues, including the origins of the COVID pandemic. Minister Wong is set to hold talks with her Chinese counterpart, Wang Yi, during the trip and in tw- late 20. 2020, we know that China imposed the so-called anti-dumping tariffs uh, of up to 218% on Australian wine. That basically killed that market. It's worth about a billion dollars a year to Australia. Australian grape and wine CEO Lee McLean spoke with Jane McNaughton about how they view the situation. Well, it's been a a really massive couple of years for Australian grape growers and winemakers and, and not a particularly good couple of years, to be honest. China a couple of years back now uh, imposed uh, import duties on Australian wines, Australian bottled wines of up to 218%, which effectively shut down what was what what was once a, a $1.2 billion market for us. And to put that in perspective, uh, China was number one by value in terms of our export markets and numbers two and three were the US and the UK, and they sat at just under 500 million each. So it was really an enormous shock to the Australian wine industry. And we're still, feeling the repercussions of, of that shock. And for many growers out there, we're really just at the beginning of the the, uh, the period of pain in terms of the oversupply situation that has ensued. Now that the Foreign Minister Penny Wong is travelling over to China, obviously there has finally been some communication between the Australian government and the Chinese government. Does this give you a little bit of hope that some of these trade sanctions may be removed or reduced? Well, look, it does. I think we're cautiously optimistic about it. And in, in the most basic of terms, I don't think we can solve any problems uh, if we're not talking. So dialogue is terrific. It's great that we're having uh, meetings at the ministerial level, at the prime minister's level as well. And we hope that that certainly leads to a, a situation in which our relationship can be uh, become normal again. Uh, we know that 
there was that period of sort of deep freeze uh, at the political and officials level for a long time and that made it very difficult for us to make any progress on some of the trade issues that we we were facing so we, we certainly hope that that dialogue can continue and that we can see a normalization of relations in the future because that's going to open up opportunities for us to talk about how we might be able to work through some of these trade tensions. Even if these trade tensions are resolved or eased and there is a better trade relationship between Australia and China, do you think that some exporters would be once bitten, twice shy and maybe not as keen to get back into the China market? Yeah, look, I, I think there's really strong demands for Australian wine in China still. That's that's what we hear from our members. Uh, they hear that from their customers. So I think if the market reopens again, we will see Australian exporters heading into China. But there's no doubt that for a lot of businesses out there, you know, their risk profile about doing business in China will be very different than it was five years ago. Uh, so uh, I wouldn't expect that we would see that return to a $1.2 billion export industry in the short to medium term. But certainly there will be a number of businesses out there that will be looking to export wines to China in the in the near term. And what about diversification? Over the past two years, trying to work through whether or not we'd even get the China market back, how well has diversification actually been achieved for Australian exporters? Yeah, it's a really good question. So essentially, we've put a huge amount of effort into trying to diversify markets, but it hasn't been as easy for the Australian wine sector as it probably has been for some other areas of the uh, the Australian agriculture sector. We have had some uh, growth in areas like Southeast Asia, um, some growth at the high end in the U- uh, the US as well. But in terms of being able to sort of work through that that massive shock that we experienced as a result of the closure of the China market. There is really no single market or no collection of markets that could have could have replaced what we lost in China. So it is much more of a slow burn for us. Um, but there are some bright spots, Japan and Korea as well, uh, Southeast Asia, the US, and in the long term, India all look promising. Uh, and we'll you know, the critical thing for us is that we can we uh, continue that export diversification effort, regardless of whether China opens up to us again or not. Australian Grape and Wine CEO Lee McLean speaking with Jane McNaughton. It is coming up to 18, uh, 18 minutes to one. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Summer have really been quite crazy seasons for fruit. The head of Australia's dried grape industry says dried fruit isn't uh, immune. This year has actually been the worst for downy mildew since the early 70s. That's due to, obviously, the third La Nina bringing a lot of humidity and rainfall across the growing areas in the Murray-Darling Basin. Mark King is the chair of Dried Fruits Australia and he tells tells Kelly Hollingworth he expects volumes next harvest to be down by more than half next year. I think it's going to be a bigger than what we think. Um, we met with both processors a week or so ago and uh, talking around 50-60% of the industry will be down and will be down by 50 or 60%. There's some growers that have got virtually nil or very little and other growers right through to 100%. Have growers been able to get their hands on spray and even spray their properties when they need to this season? No, no, and that's been a bit of the problem. I mean, chemicals have been short, but I don't know whether it's ever got to the stage that they couldn't get them. They might have had to wait a, wait a week. But when the wet weather, when we had all that weather back in September, October and uh, November, that's when we had problem out here at Pomona on the heavy soils. 
Well, I did anyway. You just couldn't get on, and you was cutting tracks up and down rows, and we never thought it would keep raining like this. And honestly, I haven't never seen Downey in the, I think, 43, 44 years that I've been doing it. Not like this. I've never lost my crop or anything to Downey. I might have had a little bit here and there, but you spray it with copper and agrifos or whatever other else chemicals you want to use, and it kills it and it stops it. This year, we've been spraying it, and with the lapsing between, but you're supposed to have 14 days protection, or the weather just comes in at the wrong time from when you've sprayed. I mean, I've known other growers that have hardly got a issue, and they've sprayed at different times. I think flowering had a lot to do with it, especially out here. It's been a late flowering, so it seems to be the varieties that flowered earlier were better off than the ones that were still flowering when the disease was in full bloom. And that last, that one day of hot weather really just rolled things. I mean, everybody knew it was coming, so people put on water to make sure the vines were going to be right and everything. And yeah, I was just, I couldn't believe it within two or three days. It really got going. I've heard that this is the worst case of downy mildew since 1973. Is that what you're hearing as well? Exactly. 73, 74, uh, um, one of an idol grower that lives out here at Pomona that actually he was telling me, and I can't remember back to 73, well not anything to do with um, grapevines anyway. He said the same thing happened. Had a heap of rain in 73, 74. He said it was in January and he was a big grower at the time and he said they lost most of their crop. I think probably some growers probably wasn't up to date with their sprays or hadn't put enough on or was thinking like we've done other years, if you get a little bit of it, you spray it with those chemicals and it kills it. But this year, you spray it with the chemicals and it killed it and then in another week's time it was back again, only with a vengeance. Chair of Dried Fruits Australia, Mark King, speaking with Kelly Hollingworth. And staying with this issue, grape growers in the Riverland have also battled some of the worst downy mildew conditions seen in decades. Some are losing their entire crop, 100% of their Sultana crop. Barmer grower Ashley Cabrell says he counts himself lucky to have been able to source some chemicals to protect his crop. Yeah, we've had some crop loss through downy mildew. We've been spraying pretty hard and we've still got looming threats of crop loss if the weather got wet again, but we're doing better than the, the Sunraiser guys. I count ourselves lucky. Some people had said downy mildew pressures uh, really had been like the worst since the early 70s, but yes, you said you were still able to get a, a decent amount of crop off. How did the disease pressures compare to previous years for you? Uh, so I've been a grower for, in my own right for 20 years, mostly wine grapes until the last seven, and it's the worst I've ever seen. Certainly caught me uh, on the hop a little bit. You know, I thought we had it under control and it just kept on coming. So it's been a challenge and um, the wine grape guys will know, you know, the, the more susceptible varieties are, have been a real big issue. So our dried fruit varieties are a bit like a gordo that people would be more familiar with. How did you go with getting chemicals to be able to spray and, and creating a, a bit of a spray routine in between those wet days? Yeah, it's a bit of a challenge this year as most of the grape guys out there would know. We had a bit on stock coming into the season, uh, which I think we have to do. And we're lucky enough to be able to buy a bit at, at the uh, resellers, so we've made ends meet. And I'd heard prices have been uh, pretty high as well for chemicals. Oh, yeah, chemicals aren't cheap. Yep, it's pretty scary if you add up what it's going to cost to do uh, a single application, but you just got to get on and do it and not think too much about that, unfortunately. How's demand looking for your fruit as well? On the dried fruit side of things, it's great. Yeah, the processors are all looking to, to up their volumes. The prices have firmed the last few years. And along with uh, the new varieties that the industry has developed, it's a pretty attractive gig, I reckon. Uh, have you got any particular new varieties that uh, I guess uh, people who might be looking out for something different to try should know about? Yeah, there's a new one out called Sugar 39. It's um, a really solid yielding variety, sort of doing about uh, 12 tonnes a hectare dry. 
and it's ready to, to start drying mid-February, early to mid-February. So it's similar to what we've already got, but it's, it's a bit earlier. So I think I'll be putting a bit of that in soon. Farmer grape grower Ashley Chabrell. Sunbeam Angus Park's field representative Alan Lister has been out assessing the damage in the Riverland from the wet spring. I was in the Riverland last Thursday and I could say that the damage ranges from about 10% to total. There's a number of growers who will not pick a berry this year. Initially, the, the conditions were weather-related. We had such a wet spring. Growers did have problems getting the right type of chemicals and also the fact that they couldn't get onto their properties because they were too wet. Generally, we spray every 10 to 14 days with our protective sprays, but this year some were even going every five days just to try and fight the downy mildew. But unfortunately, every time they sprayed, they also got uh, rained on again. Now, whether that washed a lot of the chemicals off, we don't know, but that's my opinion anyway. And it was just so rampant, just perfect conditions for the disease of downy mildew. How widespread was this across the Riverland? Well, I deal with growers from Renmark, Loxton, down to Cadell, and it's right across the Riverland. Do you have any estimates on, on what next year's harvest could be like, uh, considering this damage from the downy mildew? Yeah, well, I believe our company will probably have lost about 50% of its intake. So this is the third La Nina in a row, and it's sort of hard to know what, what next year might be like. But I guess, yeah, if any growers who are usually produce dried fruit and sultanas, is there anything they could start looking at now to prepare just in case it is another wet year? Well, they've got to clean the vines now. Hopefully we'll get a stretch of hot weather, which will kill it, but also they've got to try and make sure their vines are in good condition for next season. So keeping up their spray program, not just for downy mildew, but also powdery mildew, so they've got good, clean, healthy vines for next season. It's remarkable how much it can affect future seasons, issues like this. That was Sunbeam Angus Park's Alan Lister, ending that story from Eliza Berlage. It's coming up to 10 to 1. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Have you ever had a panic attack? Well, Christmas can be a joyful time. It can also be very stressful, especially for those still going with harvest or perhaps communities along the River Murray dealing with flooding this festive season. There's a lot going on. Now, art student Amy Gladiger grew up on a farm at Alawuna in the Riverland and she hopes a song, Breathe, which she wrote for her dad John's musical production, Kick Off Your Boots, can help rural communities better understand panic attacks. Squeeze my hand and don't be scared Stay beside you, I swear. I've struggled a lot with mental health in my past and to be able to get the opportunity to write a song like Breathe was quite an honour to help others and show them grounding techniques and stuff. The response from the song was quite great. Um, I mean, people would come up to the cast afterwards and they felt seen in a lot of the characters. And my dad even said that he didn't even realise that he'd had a panic attack before until he noticed the lyrics in the song and what the character was going through, he he was like, oh, wow, I felt that. Maybe I have had a panic attack. And now I know ways to ground myself. Your father, did he say what elements of the song or the scene that really helped him to have that realisation? 
Well, mainly the when you start to freak out, you know, the feeling of, you know, the tight chestedness and your breathing's a lot quicker. And in the song, there's lyrics like, look up at the stars and count the n- number of stars in the sky. And there's a lot of things in the song that you're forced to look at things around you or things that, to, that you hear or things that you feel, which help ground you in reality instead of thinking about everything that's going on in your head. Watch the stars above So there's mainly things like that where a lot of people, especially in rural communities and in the ag industry, you know, we don't talk about these things. Mental health, what's that? That's for for kids and for wusses, you know. Um, But a lot of this stuff is really important, and especially with the droughts over the past few years and the floods happening this year. People were really struggling, and it's a very important thing to talk about, I think, especially right now. So you grew up uh, in the Riverland and Mallee. Uh, it must be pretty bizarre I'm seeing some of the photos and the videos of the, the High River event now. What's it like seeing some of that vision of the, of the High River compared to the drought growing up? Oh, for sure, no. Um, I mean, I think the, the only flood that I can properly remember in my lifetime was the 2016 one, and this is way past that. But it's pretty crazy to see all the photos. I've been watching closely on Facebook and mum's been sending me updates, but it's pretty crazy and especially a lot of farmers and stuff are being affected by the floods right now, which again is um, why something like Breeze is very important and relevant to the situation right now. Alawuna art student Amy Gladigo. So you can just Clinical psychologist Kate Gunn, who specialises in rural mental health, explains how to recognise and manage a panic attack. So panic attacks are really caused when our body detects some kind of threat to our safety and they're kind of like a biological false alarm. But they're preparing us to fight or run away from a threat when we actually don't need to. And what tends to happen is when we get some kind of fright, we start breathing a lot more quickly and then that can create physical symptoms like dizziness and tingling because the levels of oxygen and carbon dioxide in our systems actually get all out of sync. But the good news is this is actually something that you can reverse quite easily and Amy's song's really powerful because it just talks about the importance of just breathing and those deep, slow breaths can pretty quickly reverse that imbalance of oxygen and carbon dioxide and get you kind of feeling back more like your normal self. We do suggest that if you have a few of these that perhaps you go to your doctor just to rule out any other medical conditions that might make you feeling dizzy or something like that. But once those conditions have been ruled out and if you know that it definitely is a panic attack, people, once they understand that process and get good at at being able to prompt themselves to start that deep breathing and just focusing on things that they can see immediately around them, then pretty quickly you can learn strategies to bring yourself down and and get you out of that.
University of South Australia's Rural Senior Health Research Fellow, Dr Kate Gunnan, in that story from Eliza Berlage. And you can hear the full song Breathe by Amy Gladigo on YouTube if you search for Kick Off Your Boots. And if this story has raised any issues for you, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Beyond Blue on 1300 22 46 36. And uh, it's certainly a, a time to be reminded of your mental health, particularly when there are some stressful situations coming up, particularly for people living along the River Murray and dealing with flooding this festive season. Finally today, Western Australia's northwest could soon be home to its very own tequila-like spirit. A few years ago, one of Andrew Forrest's companies called Harvest Road kicked off some agave trials at Brickhouse Station, which is about 20 kilometres east of Carnarvon. Agave is native to Mexico, which is also home to, as you guessed it, tequila, but it looks like the plant grows well in WA's Gascoigne, which has similar growing conditions to Mexico. So Harvest Road's Richard Coon says they're now shoring up plans to create Australia's second agave spirit. Agave obviously is quite novel and it started off as a bit of a passion project but has fast becoming more of a commercial venture for us. We've got a, a beverages division within Harvest Road which is a great synergy for us that produce spirits at the moment. So the long-term vision for us is to have the end-to-end supply chain on agave or the tequila spirit named TBC. Um, but we, yeah, we think there's a great opportunity for a local tequila type spirit that's you know grown here at Brickhouse and, and processed by our beverages division. And hopefully, we'll, again, we'll market this great region and what's unique about it. Agave uh, takes a long time to grow. How long away are we looking at? Yeah, so the normal life cycle for agave is five to seven years. Along that journey, we're obviously going to try and do as much testing as we can to understand how the plants are going and whether there's any opportunity to get into market sooner would be great, but we also don't want to rush our entrance. So we kind of think from where we are today, it's probably four to five years away. Coming up in this calendar year, we plan to start doing trials on the plants to see what the sugar levels are and start to play around a bit with our beverages team to to get an understanding of what the flavour is going to be like and, I guess, really validate that opportunity so we can start getting ready from a market perspective in terms of branding and all those great things. So what are the key research and development points from here to entering the market? Agave, historically, being grown in Mexico, is a a very labour-intensive crop to harvest. That's the biggest challenge facing us at the moment is obviously labour costs in Australia compared to Mexico are vastly different. So for us in the next few years, what's critical is understanding what the mechanisation opportunities are or automation in terms of harvesting agave which we've started to talk to some universities around Western Australia and around the rest of the country as well to understand who might be out there to to help us sort of take on that challenge. And then secondly, it's around the post-harvest processing, so the cooking and juicing. And again, sustainability is so important to what we do in Harvest Road, so understanding where is the best place to do that in terms of transporting syrup versus transporting agave peanuts. All those sorts of challenges are what we need to work through. So it's really that intermediate step between harvesting and distilling. Harvest Rose Business Development General Manager Richard Coney. And uh, we can take a closer look at the actual farming of the agave at Brickhouse Station. Saxon Boston is the station's horticulture manager who says in the last two years the succulent has grown so well they're now looking at boosting production. So when we put the agave in, the agave seedlings that we got came over bare-rooted for quarantine purposes, no soil from Queensland. And prior to that they were, they were brought in by Oz Agave from Mexico as tissue culture and then growing out in the nursery in Queensland. So we brought in 5,000 seedlings and planted them into one hectare 
that spacing's a little bit tight. We're sort of falling back to 4,000 to the hectare now. But they're just over two years old and they're, um, and they're going well. The growth rates on those are showing that Carnarvon, the climate here, the soils, is, is really good for, for, for the production of agave. Now that we have those, that genetics, which is actually known as a tequila cultivar, and we can't call it tequila, it's a bit like champagne, you know, there's trademark rights over the name, so we'll find another name for our spirits. But now that we've got those, um, they throw out pups, or some people call them suckers, the little pups at the bottom they push out, and you can, you can dig them out of the ground and we can get our own plant material from them now to expand. Harvest Roads Horticulture Manager at Brickhouse Station, Saxon, Boston, speaking to Samantha Gurley. That's all we have time for today. Narelle Graham will be on your local radio this afternoon. She's chatting to people, including a young South Australian cricketer. More to come on your local radio. It's coming up to one o'clock. Stay connected with your ABC. Find news online at abc.net.au. Select your postcode to see local stories, news and weather. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.